So a lot of new faces, um, and it's great to see everyone. Um, I hope you feel really welcome. Uh, it's kind of a beginning of spring. Um, kind of happy that the winter is also coming back for a little bit. Uh, global warming is a thing, supposedly. So, yeah. So this evening, I'm speaking on the ruthless elimination of Harry. And I want to open up and ask who of you have read the book or know about the book from John Markoma? Okay, so we have one, two. Anyone else? Oh, we've got a Hanyu there in, in the back. Big fan, I see. Um, yeah, so yeah, so few hands. Um, it's a it's a better. Uh, it, it seems like the evening is more readers than the morning. So um, so well done. You can can pat yourself on the on the back. So this evening is um, I'm going to just shamelessly take John Wacomer's book and just snipper it up and mash it together as best I can and uh, give us a bit of, of the heart of that. Um, and I read this book a while back, and, I th and, and more recently when I picked it up again to do the sermon, uh, I read outside of it and I thought, oh, this was a good theme. But as I picked it up again, I just realized this is really a word for us in our time. And so it is, I think for me, um, just wonderful that we can actually think on this, and I, I hope that it catches um, something of your heart. Uh, I do want to also say that we've got a, a lot to, to get to. So, um, yeah, so I just want to maybe get us to, to start in that. So the, the outlay of this sermon is going to, I'm really going to look at the problem of hurry for uh, the biggest part or, or long part before we get to the solution, before we get to our scripture reading. That's kind of just opening that wound and really look at, at the problem before we get to the solution. So to start, I want to, to ask, um, what do you think is the greatest problem or the greatest danger to your spiritual life? If you had to name one thing um, currently in Pretoria, and um, I know the elephant's in the room kind of there. But what, what would you think? And if you had any conversation with me over the last year, you would have heard a few isms, um, worldviews. Uh, more lately, I've been reading Solzhenitsyn. Um, so communism, uh, problematic. But um, postmodernism, modernity, liberal theology or the popularization of the prosperity gospel. We all like ourselves a bit of money. Um, the redefining of sexuality and marriage, or the erasure of gender, or to him. Um, and, and so a lot that comes through is, is these people's words. And John Ortberg, he once asked his mentor, Dallas Willard, and, uh, a, this question. He said, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be, to be that Christian, to, be a, to have a fulfilled life, to not waste my life. How do I be that person? And Willard took a moment, and um, an old bird, he knew that whenever this guy spoke, it is gold. So he sat ready with his notebook, and he waited. And he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And all books say, yo, that's good. Might need some unpacking. What else? What else? And, um, and then uh, Willard said, nothing else. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So hurry 
the great enemy of spiritual life. Here's a few other people and, and what they had to say about it. Corrie ten Boom, she once said, uh, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. So there's truth to that. Uh, both sin and busyness keeps us from relationship with God, our connection with other people, and even connecting to your own soul. The famous psychologist Carl Jung had this little saying, hurry is not, uh, is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. Mm. So, what do people normally answer when you ask them the customary? What, what are you busy with? What are you doing um, with your day or your life? How are you? And so people answer, we are busy. And we've heard this a thousand times in sermons, and yet this is still very much how we relate to our life. Good, but busy, busy. We must repeat the busy. Um, and, and so at the, the core of our lives is hurry is, is a problem that it undergirds um, many of the symptoms of toxicity of our world. And it has become the new norm. Uh, it is a new way of life. So this speed, uh, is, it's not Christian. It's antichrist. So think about it. What is the highest value in Christ's kingdom economy? What is, when, when Christ gives one command, what is that? You shall love. You shall love um, the Lord your God. And um, so he says the greatest command in all of the Torah was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength, followed only by love your neighbor as yourself. But love is painfully time-consuming. All parents know this, as do all lovers, and most long-term friends, hurry and love is incompatible. And here's a few other things with, with what Harry kind of relates to. Um, the kingdom, John, John Wesley, he observed, I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. Nobody can. Not only does Harry keep us from the love, joy, and peace of the kingdom of God, the very core of what all human beings crave, but it also keeps us from God himself, simply by stealing our attention. And with hurry, we always lose more than we gain. Uh, Walter Adams, the spiritual director to C.S. Lewis, uh, he stated, to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer and only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. Uh, again, Ortberg, he comments, he says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for the mediocre version of it. We will just skim over uh, our lives instead of actually living them. So, Hari kind of directs us and our attention, and, um, and it, it brings us to distraction. And when I think of distraction, what is the one thing uh, we, we can kind of think of? It's our phones, isn't it? So, a recent study 
um, has shown that the average iPhone user touches his phone 2,617 times a day. Um, but it basically, uh, it amounts to 76 sessions generally, um, two to three hours a day for the average user. And then for millennials, it goes up to six hours a day. And for some people, even more if, if that addiction is, is full on. So, so yeah, we have this distraction. Um, and the thing is, if you still don't think that hurry is, is your problem, if you, if you think, okay, yeah, that's good points, but I don't think this, uh, this settles with me, then there is um, a little self-inventory test I want us to take. It is uh, a test on hurry sickness. So I'm going to read us six of them, and I want you to kind of, you can uh, take two hands, and you can just kind of count up where you kind of lie with it. Um, how many of these you had? How are you doing? If I'm, if I'm going to read them out. There's, there's more in the book, but I'm, I'm just going to do ten of them, uh, six of them. So the first one is restlessness. When you actually do try to slow down and rest, you can't relax. You give Sabbath a try, but you hate it. You read scripture, but you find it boring. You have quiet time with God, but can't focus your mind. You go to bed early, but toss and turn with anxiety. You watch TV, but simultaneously check your phone, fold laundry, or maybe you get onto an internet fight with, with someone, troll, one or another troll. So your mind and body are hyped on the drug of speed, and when you don't get your next dopamine fix, you shiver. That's one. Two, workalism or just non-stop activity. You just don't know when to stop. Or worse, you can't. Another hour, another day, another week. Your drugs of choice are accomplishment and accumulation. These could show up as careerism or just an obsessive house cleaning and errand running. Result, you fall prey to sunset fatigue, where by day's end, you have nothing left to give to your spouse, children, and loved ones. They get the grouchy, overtired you, and it's not pretty. Three, out of, uh, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. I know so little people who get this right. Your life is reactive, not proactive. You're busier than ever before, and yet still feel like you don't have the time for what really matters to you. Months go by, or years, or God forbid, maybe it's been decades. And you realize you still haven't gotten around to all the things you said were the most important in your life. Four, lack of care of your body. You don't have the time for the basics, eight hours of sleep a night, daily exercise, um, healthy, home-cooked food, minimal stimulants, and margin, making time, extra time. You gain weight, get sick multiple times a year, regularly wake up tired, don't sleep well, live of the four horsemen of the industrial food, um, food apocalypse. And these ones I love. It's, um, I love and I love. <laughs> 
Um, caffeine, sugar, processed carbs, and alcohol. Is there anyone out there <laughs> who loves these? Uh, five, it's uh, escapist behavior. When we're too tired to do what actually is life-giving for our souls, we turn to our distractions of choice. Overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn, make, uh, well, name your preferred narcotic. And some narcotics are good for, for a time. They shield us from unnecessary pain. But when we abuse them to escape reality, they eat us alive. You find yourself stuck in the negative feedback loop of socially acceptable addictions. And the last one, this one I kind of feel, in an ironic Catch-22, the things that make for rest actually take a bit of emotional energy and self-discipline. So when we get over busy, we get overtired, and when we get overtired, we don't have the energy or discipline to do what, um, what we need most for our souls. And repeat, the cycles begins to feed of our own energy. So instead of life with God, we settle for light with Netflix subscription and a, and a glass of cheap red wine. That's a very poor substitute. So not because that uh, TV and Netflix are the great Satan, but because we rarely get done with binge-watching anything and feel awake, and, and, and we don't feel anything. We don't feel awake or alive from, from the soul outward, rested, refreshed, and ready for a new day. We delay the inevitable, the emotional crash. And as a consequence, we miss out on the life-giving sense of the worthness of God. So how did you do? Is, is people doing well in here? Um, so this leads to, it kills us by distraction. That's, that's one aim of, of Hari. And the mystics, they, they noticed it. So they, uh, the contemplatives and mystics, they went out to monasteries and the desert and, and they thought about this um, and specifically they tried to speak to God about this. And the one thing they say is that we're missing awareness. Now, what do they mean by this? Um, the meaning is the chronic problem of human beings' felt experience of distance from God. They say God is usually not the culprit. God is omnipresent. There is no place God is not. And no time he isn't present either. Our awareness of God is the problem, and it is acute. So many people live without a sense of God's presence through the day. We, uh, we talk about his absence as if it's this great question of theodicy. So theodicy, um, where is God in our pain? Where is God? I don't feel him. And the thing is, um, yes, we all have a dark night of the soul. Uh, yes, we do feel the distance and with God. But, but could it be that with a few set exceptions, we're the ones who are absent, not God. We sit around sucked into our phones or TV or to-do lists, obvious, uh, oblivious to the God who is around us, who is with us, even more desirous than we are for a relationship. So I fear for our future and the future of the church when I, when I hear this. And 
And there is more at stake than just our attention spans. So because where we point our attention is, is the person that you become. So to put this another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with shapes the, the, uh, the trajectory of your character, where how you think is the way you will go. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. I love that. So by the end of your life, the things you gave your attention to, that will be you. So hurry is toxic to our emotional health, but it is also to our spiritual lives. It is symptomatic of a, a deeper issue of the heart. Um, John Ortberg, he says, hurry is not just an, a, a disorientated schedule. Hurry is a disorientated heart. So all too often, our hurry is a sign of something else, something deeper. Usually that we're running away from something. It could be father wounds, childhood trauma, last names, deep insecurity. Uh, sorry? Nothing. Last names. <laughs> yeah, um, it is an interesting one. Um, Deficits of self-worth, fear of failure, pathological inability to accept the limitations of our humanity, or simply boredom with the mundan uh, uh, mundanity of middle life. So the other option is we're, we're running to something. Promotions or purchases or experiences or stamps on our passports or the next high, something in vain uh, for something, no, uh, something in vain for, for something no earthly experience has to offer. A sense of self-worth and love and acceptance. In the mediocrity of the waste, it's easy to feel like we're the only good, uh, like, like we're only as good as our next sales commissions or quarterly reports or music singles or sermons or Instagram posts or new toys. So we're constantly out of breath, chasing the ever-elusive wind. So cue the haunting line from Jesus of Nazareth. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Matthew 16, 26. So have you, have you lost your soul, or at least a part of it? And do you want it back? What is, what is the solution? Um, how do we do this? How do we live deliberately without going to live in one or another monastery or becoming an Amish? How do we slow down, simplify, and live deliberately right in the middle of the chaos of noisy, fast-paced, urban, digital world, uh, that what we call home? And here it is where we get to our text, where we get to listen to Jesus, um, the Master. Um, so our text this evening is Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, and I'll read for us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, here I want to kind of stand still and just kind of as 
good preaching would do, look at the context, look at the exegesis of, of this little piece. So what is Jesus doing here? In this chapter, Jesus is preaching and teaching. It's actually written in there. And Jesus was a rabbi. Uh, the Hebrew meaning is teacher. And yes, he is more, the, the Messiah, and an embodiment of, of God himself. And we, we truly believe that. But the thing is, we jump to that. That's kind of our default. Yes, Jesus, God. Um, but if you had been a first century Jew, and Jesus showed up in your synagogue one Sabbath morning, the odds are the category that you would have put him in was that of a rabbi or a traveling sage. And like every rabbi of the day, Jesus had two things. First, he had a yoke. And second, he had disciples. So the yoke. And not a literal yoke. Um, of course, he was a teacher and not a farmer. Um, so yoke is a, a common idiom in the first century for a rabbi's way of reading the Torah. But it is also more... It was a set of teachings on how to be human, his way to shoulder the weight of life, marriage, divorce, prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, government, work, all of it. It's an odd image for those of us today who don't live in an agrarian society. But imagine two oxen yoked together to pull a cart or plow a field. A yoke is how you shoulder the load. So what made Jesus unique wasn't that he had a yoke. All rabbis had a yoke. It was that his yoke was easy. That was what he put on the table. That was what he put up for offer. And we'll come back to this analogy. But uh, first, let's get to um, the second thing. All rabbis had disciples. So the word in Hebrew is the word Talmudim. It's usually translated as disciples. And, and that's just fine, but I, I think um, we kind of miss it, and Marcoma thinks this. He says, the idea about, uh, behind Talmudim is rather something like apprentice. To be one of Jesus' Talmudim is to apprentice under him. Uh, put simply, it is to organize life around three basic goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he would do if he were you. And I think a better image that we kind of have for apprentice sometimes is if you're apprenticing under a blacksmith in the Middle Ages, you would go live with him. You would see how he, he um, manages his furnace. You would the deepest part of your being to experience what Jesus called life in the full, John 10, 10. What the New Testament writers call salvation. And um, yeah, and keep in mind that the Greek word is uh, that, that's translated for salvation is um, soteria. It's where we get our study in theology for how to get saved, soteriology. Um, and it's the same word that we translate as healing. So when you're reading in the New Testament and you read that somebody was healed by Jesus and then you read um, that, some, um, that somebody was saved by Jesus, you're reading the same Greek word, um, soteria. And uh, so salvation is healing. So even the etymology in our English for salvation comes from the Latin salve, as in the ointment that you put on a burn or a wound. 
This is what Jesus was all about, healing people, saving them on a soul-deep level. And Jesus generally did this by calling us to apprenticeship, and he gave an invite. He would say, um, come and follow me. Or he would say, come and be my Talmudim. Come and be my disciple. Come and be my apprentice. So that was Jesus' language for people to come and find healing in apprenticeship. But this is another invite, a something different way of, of statement here. And, and this is what I want to, to focus on again now. I want to reread our passage um, that we've just had. And I want to do so very slowly, giving us time to really process it in our system, kind of metabolize it if we, if we can. So take a deep breath. You can even close your eyes if you want to and, and listen to this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases this in the message, and I'm also going to read this slowly for us. Again, listen to this. I'm going to read it. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That is, that is the tagline that you have to um, kind of get to. And I hope that this is something that, that becomes more clear as we, as we go through the evening. So the question is, is there anybody of us that, that feels this way? Um, and maybe, um, is, there, is there anyone not feeling like this? burdened, tired at some times. So I think, of course, that that seems to, to be the answer is yes. But I want to address also the elephant in the room. You, you might think, um, that, and, and this is how many of us might feel, you might think that you are a follower of Jesus. And as far as you can tell, you are still honestly tired and you're worn out, and you live with a low-grade fatigue that rarely goes away. And honestly, you say, I am a little burned out on religion. So what gives? Um, uh, am, are, are we missing anything? John McComer is, from, is, is of the opinion that we are missing something. Uh, and it took him a long while. He, he ran into a full 
burnout in, in his life. And again, he, he went to his mentor, and the thing he says, he says, we are desensitized with these words. Um, he says, if you grew up in the church, the odds are that uh, the odds are high that you know this verse in Matthew very well. It reached a cliche level of status. And, and so he says there is something that is embedded in the section that we miss. Dallas Willard calls this the secret of the easy yoke. It's kind of coined the, the secret in the easy yoke. <clears throat> he says, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, doing the second, uh, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. And um, Makome, he, he kind of paraphrases that. He says, if you want to experience the life of, life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And as long as I've been repeating, I can maybe just repeat this again. If you want the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so maybe to break this in for us, I, it's a little bit of a story. At the beginning of the year, I was at the South Coast, and my, I go into overdrive in, in exercise mode, and I kind of blame my sister for it. I'm in the ocean, and I'm swimming a lot. Um, and then I see all these beach bodies around me, um, uh, how we turn them for the beach. And, um, and I think this year, this year, I'm getting into shape. And it wasn't long uh, when I was back in Pretoria, and I drove past Castlegate. It's a centrum close to, to where I live. And there's this big gym, and it was a Friday evening, and I was out the evening, and there was this girl in the gym, in, like, the side of the window, and she was at a flat run, um, just sprinting. And I'm sitting there with my McDonald's burger. Life choices. Um, and in the same way, I... I drive past two CrossFits quite, quite regularly. One is on this premises. And um, so two weeks back, we had a TGIF year, and I came here. And when we got here, the first section of people had already finished their training. They, they're done. I'm getting here quarter to six, and they, they're finishing up their first session. Um, and, and so, you know, I just really want to do a power-up. Um, but... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, so what happens is I, I run a, a, cost, a, a cost benefit analysis. I, I take an inventory of myself and I quickly realize and I decide, nope, this, this is too much. It's not worth the pain. So I simply become a spectator. And in reality, I think this is what we do with Jesus. We look at his life and we like what we see but then we decide this is not for us. So we read the stories of Jesus, his joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, 
his relaxed manner of how in the moment he was and think, I want that life. We hear his open invite, life to the full, and think, sign me up. We hear about the easy yoke and the soul deep rest and think, gosh, yes, heck yes, I need that. But then we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. But in Jesus, the cost is worth, worth it. In fact, you get back far more than you give up. There is a cross, yes, a death, but it's followed by an empty tomb, a new portal to life. Because the way of Je- in the way of Jesus, death is always followed by resurrection. The funny thing is, um, we play the same game. It's an often uh, quoted uh, line. It says, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different outcome. But that's exactly and nothing changes. It's the same cycle on repeat. Stress, tiredness, and restraction. We feel uh, stuck yet again. And then we wonder, what am I missing? And so here I think we go one level deeper. The answer is again looking at the yoke. Um, It is a, a bizarre language for an invitation. Find rest for your souls. And then he throws in the, the yoke. He says, yokes are for farming. Farming is work. Work is not rest. So, but he's offering us a yoke. Frederick Dale Brunner is a top scholar on the Gospel of Matthew. And his insight into the paradox of an easy yoke is worth reading. A yoke is a work, uh, a work in, in instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers us a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. So that's so insightful. But Jesus realizes that the most restful give he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his sermon on the mount, his yoke, will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. And so, yes, um, we, we kind of grab to all these distractions. Um, we become addicted. We get a dopamine fix, um, and we do this to maybe escape a father wound or emotional pain or unhappy marriage. People all over the world, outside the church and in, are looking for an escape, a way out from under the crushing weight of life, this side of Eden. But there is no escaping it. The best the world can offer is a temporary distraction or delay or to delay the inevitable, or to deny the inescapable. That's why Jesus doesn't offer us an escape. He offers us something far better, equipment. He offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of humanity with ease. At his side, 
like two oxen in a field, tied shoulder to shoulder with Jesus doing the heavy lifting. At his pace, slow, unhurried, present in the moment, full of love and joy and peace. An easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke is. So, how does this look? Following Jesus has to make it into our schedule. It has to be a practice, um, or it will simply never happen. Apprenticeship to Jesus will remain an idea and uh, not a reality in our life. Um, this is where the, the tire kind of hits the road. And, and this is what we, we so many times hear when I kind of just challenge this a little bit or, or give some of the core practices of the life of Jesus to people. Um, we hear this refrain, refrain, it sounds great, but I just don't have the time. And these are excuses. They're good excuses, like um, a lot of us, well, not here yet, have kids. Um, but we've got degrees to finish, and we've got uh, things to, be, to, to do, places to be. Um, we've got our family. We've got, um, we, we've got city living. You, you have to do ten things and become five other things. And, and so we have busy schedules. But the fact is, these are excuses. Um, I get it. But the more I meditate on this section, I, I get more courage to push back a little and to say there are excuses. The hard truth is that following Jesus is something you do, a practice as much as it is a faith. At their core, the practices of Jesus are about a relationship with the God he called Father. And all relationships takes time. And, um, and this is kind of, I'm, I'm going to end up for us in two stories. Um, the first is, is this. That if we had to relate our relationship with God to a marriage, um, a marriage that's going less than ideal, and your spouse comes to you and she says, um, she, she's asking two things. She's saying, um, can I have a half hour of you every day for conversation that we can connect? Can I have one date night? And can I have maybe a little bit of you over weekends? Basically the bare minimum to a good relationship. And your answer is, sorry, I don't have the time. All the while you're giving 30 hours a week to things like TV and the internet and fantasy football or rugby or maybe articles that you like reading. Um, then... It, it, it's just common sense. Any, any person with a little bit of sense would tell you, you do have the time. You're just wasting it. Or he would say, well then, you're just too busy to have a spouse. So either you need to radically rethink your schedule or you're en route to a divorce. Hopefully, you would advocate for the former. Um, so... So I guess this, this is where we kind of come to a crossroad if we think on our Christian life. To get on or to get off moment, a schedule, a practice, to create a space in life for Jesus, to make room for love and joy and peace, to become your default, uh, to become your default settings. And the question is, are we ready to do this? And so... The book kind of goes on and gives us some spiritual disciplines. Uh, the ones that were based are, are silence and solitude and the Sabbath 
and just the discipline of slowing down. And there's a lot of great advice in that. But I think I can kind of tie it up all with a little story for us. Um, so when I was young, I, I got to go to, uh, to the Kruger a lot, Kruger National Park. And I, I hated it. It was terrible. <laughs> um, so, so why? What happened? Um, you drive to the Kruger, and then suddenly everything slows to, the dead, to a dead halt. You see an impala, and what is it doing? It's chewing grass. And um, then you go to, on to the next impala, and you know what that one's doing? It's chewing grass. Um, then you get to the elephant. You know what it's doing? It's chewing leaves. And you, then you get to, to the lion. And uh, what, what is it doing? It's chewing the impala, but good. <laughs> yeah. Um, good. Uh, so the, the interesting thing is um, I hated it for, for that reason. And also I, want, I wanted stimulus. I wanted something to happen, but I'm stuck in this car. And every day is just a drive into this savannah of nothingness. Um, and I also had my brother with me. And my brother also wanted stimulus. So there's a good way to find some entertainment. And that is your smaller little brother. Um, so it was basically this cage with my brother in one sense. And in the other side, Impala. Um, but the funny thing is, as, as we, we kind of sat in that, that setting for a week and a half, slowly but surely, boredom kind of gets to you. you. You find an antline and you dig it out. You see what it, what it is, how it looks. Um, you have nothing else to do, so everybody kind of quiets down. Our conversations, our tone of speech just becomes lower and slower. And, and we see suddenly how certain birds do certain things differently to other birds. You pick up things in nature. You end up around the fire because there is no television, and you have to look at it, uh, a bushfield television. And then you sit with your father. But that becomes the conduit to relationship, to meaningful conversations. I got to know my father on vacations. I got to know my brother. And one thing I give to my family is we are really, really close. And I think it is because they invested in times like that. Once a month, there's a family gathering. And what we do is we kind of equate how I looked at the, the Kruger National Park when I was a kid. So when, when we drove out, suddenly everything then was not too slow. It was too fast. And I, I realized the right way of looking at life is actually my perspective while I had it on the inside of the Kruger National Park. It, it's of the practices that we just miss. We do not practice the Sabbath. And the funny thing is you can do the Sabbath um, kind of like doing a life at 180 kilometers an hour and then pull up the handbrake on a Sunday and think, okay, just hit life in the same way the next day. One or the other is going to change. Your Sabbath routine is either going to change or your life is going to change. It will impact all of your life. So in closing, we are called to make choices that involve a price, to pursue a life that is beyond price. And people will talk once you, you kind of change your metrics, change the way you've been weighing life, how you think about your time and where you spend it. But the thing is, let them talk. 
and, and take on the yoke of Jesus. I, I want to end for us in, in prayer, but um, yeah, I want to maybe give us again just a, a moment of quiet that you can just think on your, on your own, where are you kind of missing it with Jesus? And then I will close for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you that this is your gospel, that we get to have a new life. Um, I specifically want to pray for us who really don't know how to do this. We have busy lives. We are in corporate situations. And we are set to a pace of this world. And I pray that you teach us how to be agents of change in the places that we are in. I pray for all the men, women, everyone that's in this rust life and in places where they, do, they cannot choose it always. Um, I want to pray for students as well who maybe mismanage their time, don't leave time for margin. Um, and, I, and maybe for all of us to think on how we do this. Uh, Father, and then I also want to pray that we do not forget this message, even though it was a little bit messy. Uh, the word rings true. That we cannot live without you. We will get burned out and, and we, um, we get messed up. And, and the end of it is actually a spiritual death and we do an autopsy. And Father, I, I thank you that you, you give us this road, that you, that you give us a yoke. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.